Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 20th, 2017. I want to thank those who participated in EconTalk's annual survey, which is now closed. Uh, I'll discuss the results and your favorite episodes of the year next week. Now for today's guest, writer, reporter, and film producer Jim Epstein of Reason, whose recent crazy article on what is happening in Venezuela really fascinated me. And that's our topic for today. Jim, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. It's a a thrill to be on my favorite podcast. Um, And I also want to say right at the outset that I actually first heard about Bitcoin um, by listening to your uh, 2011 interview with Gavin Andreessen. Oh, cool. And I remember standing in my kitchen listening to that interview thinking – this can't possibly work. <laughs> uh, and, you know, over the course of six years, I, through a gradual evolution, including through my reporting on Venezuela, I've come around to the idea that it's going to actually change the world. Um, oh. at the, but I'll also say one more thing, which is that in 2011, when you interviewed Gavin, the price of a Bitcoin was 90 cents. So I also mm-hmm. wish I'd purchased a few. But. No, you're not alone there. Uh, I have a friend... Uh, a very wise advisor, advisor friend who mocks me constantly for my failure to purchase at that point. Uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, though, yeah. and we don't keep track of all the times we didn't buy all the things that didn't go up, but it, it is somewhat unsettling. <laughs> uh, we don't do investment advice on this uh, program, of course, uh, so consult with your advisor for what the right uh, – Activity is for yourself, those of you listening out there. So this is a this sounds this is partly about Bitcoin, but it's about lots of things, which is really what makes it such an extraordinary story. Um, when, when I tell people that I'm interviewing you about this, they go, "You're kidding! This is so bizarre." So the, the, the background for the story is the Venezuelan economy, which people may have heard hasn't been doing so well lately. Uh, give us some idea of what's gone wrong in Venezuela, not necessarily the causes people argue about, but what's the state of the economy generally? I mean, the state of the economy is, I think the most important thing to mention is that um, for a long time, and, and in many cases now still, the supermarkets are empty. So you can't really buy food the normal way. And that, that has to do with price control. So an enormous black market has grown up in food. Um, so it's, you know, it's okay for the middle class. If you're, if you're poor, it's particularly difficult. You can wait in line for a long time at a, at a Venezuelan, uh, uh, supermarket. I'm sorry, government owned supermarket. But the bottom line is that, um, uh, people, there's a shortage of food. Um, the hospitals are falling apart. Um, people are fleeing the country in mass. The country's been taken over by violence. Uh, the, the police and these, uh, you know, the uh, secret police, the federal police are also pretty dangerous. It's, it's kind of become a living hell. And there's debate about how bad it is. I, I just want to and, and as well as what are the nature of the policies exactly, the price control situation is quite complicated. There's been some relaxation of price controls, evidently, in the, outside of Caracas, in the outside regions of this, uh, in, in other parts of the country. But I just want to read a, a quote from The Nation, uh, a left-leaning publication, an article by Gabriel Hetland, who just gives some facts as well as 
his own take as to what what's gone wrong blames it partly on government mistakes partly on uh u.s policy but that's again not our purview in this conversation just wonder about his summary of what's happening there this was written in august of last year uh runaway but quote the main features are the following runaway but not yet hyperinflation which government sources unofficially put at 370 percent for the past 12 months in which the IMF estimates will top 700% for 2016, multiple years of low and negative economic growth, 1.3 in 2013, negative 3.9% in 2014, negative 5.7 in 2015, and estimated negative 10.1% in 2016, according to the IMF, with the Economic Commission on Latin America and the Caribbean forecasting an 8%, a negative 8% growth in 2016. A 40% drop in imports this year and a 60% drop since 2012. Chronic scarcities of food, basic goods, and medicine. And you may have seen videos of people rioting in the streets over possible opportunity to get food, uh, empty shelves, people in lines for hundreds and hundreds of yards hoping to get basic supplies like sugar, rice, flour, toilet paper, etc., it's not a good situation. Uh, crime is, is is a huge problem. There is a lot of corruption in the government, as you've mentioned. And so what's interesting is in this situation, uh, people have come up with some pretty creative stuff. And so talk about what some of those activities are uh, that you write about in your article. Well, I guess I'll first talk. So basically what's happening in Venezuela is that people are using Bitcoin and it's uh, what, what is driving this in part. And we can talk a lot about what uh, Bitcoin's unique attributes, which gets around the government's currency controls. But what's really driving it um, in Venezuela and, and causing such a rapid increase in uptake is that electricity in Venezuela is virtually free. Um, you know, it's a token sum that you pay. It's heavily subsidized by the government. And there's an activity, for those who are familiar with Bitcoin, called Bitcoin mining, which is you're participating in the Bitcoin network. Most people who use Bitcoin, the vast majority, are not miners, but anyone can become a miner. And when you become a miner, you are um, helping to kind of maintain and run this decentralized currency network, which is Bitcoin. Um, and you're, you're using a lot of electricity. And in, in, in most of the, uh, world, um, it's, it's hard to squeeze out any value in mining. So when you mine, you get paid in newly minted bitcoins. But, you know, the price of electricity, because you're running com your computers at high speeds, you're doing, uh, solving cryptographic puzzles, are they're going to generate a lot of heat? use a lot of electricity, and that electricity, the cost of it, can sometimes exceed the value of the Bitcoins that you receive. So to Venezuela, where electricity is, uh, you know, virtually free. Artificially can, cheap. Artificially cheap. If you can set up a Bitcoin miner, and people are discovering this, it can even be an outdated miner, that, uh, which is a specially uh, designed computer, which would be essentially worthless, uh, would get you nothing here in the U.S. Um, you can set it up there, and you can start making money. And this is in the midst of a country where there's not enough food. Suddenly, you can... It's like having a home mint. There's almost this magical realism aspect to it that uh, in the midst of this this country that's just dis uh, disintegrating, uh, the economy's disintegrating, um, 
you can you can Bitcoin mine. You can set up a miner in a soundproof room of of your house and start making you know seventy eighty bucks a month, um, and that is really changing the lives of of uh, middle class Venezuelans all over the country. So a little background for those of you who don't remember or missed our previous Bitcoin episodes. You can go back and listen to them. We put a bunch of them up as links to this episode. But the point you're making is that the solving of cryptographic, uh, extremely complex uh, computing challenges is the way that uh, the creator of Bitcoin um, set it up so that it would be difficult but not impossible to generate additional Bitcoin and that the amount that would be generated would increase at a decreasing rate till it finally reaches a limit. And so the only thing that keeps people from creating more at any one time is their brain power, their ability to learn how to do this and access to computing equipment with a sufficiently low cost of using that equipment, which is the electricity. So here we have Bitcoin mining flowing to its cheapest source, which is places where electricity is artificially low. Now, before we get into what's, and this is especially interesting, what people do with the Bitcoin, um, talk a little bit about the electricity challenge, which is that even though it is artificially low, it often is shut off for hours at a time by the government to conserve uh, the cost or to keep the cost down of providing cheap electricity. Uh, well, I mean, Venezuela <clears throat> has a has a uh, an awful electric grid. Um, so, um, they, you know, there are, and, and they've also, they also primarily rely on hydroelectric power. There have been electricity shortages. It's like everything else in the economy, the infrastructure there, it's falling apart. They've had, uh, uh, three, three day, uh, government holidays to, to shut down the office buildings. There's been rolling blackouts in some parts of the country. So yes, there are electricity shortages. Um, however, um, in many parts of the country, uh, th- there haven't been shortages, um, uh, miners are also, they're very savvy. They do things like they, um, rent office space in industrial areas of the city where the electricity supply is more constant. Um, it, there are definitely miners who are dealing with constant outages and it in- decreases their, their earnings from their mining activities. But it's not to the, you know, it's still a fant- incredibly profitable, uh, venture. If you can, if you can learn about it and, and, and start doing it. And just as a footnote, I also should have mentioned when people list the causes of Venezuela's problems, uh, the fall in the price of oil has been very hard on them also. Uh, of course, they're not the only country that has had to face that. And their economic situation, uh, I think, is mainly due to really poor economic policy. But people debate that. Uh, so some creative people have gone out, acquired computing equipment taken advantage of the cheap electricity price and produced Bitcoin, a, a currency that is not uh, inflating at 300 or 700 percent a year. Um, what are they doing with it? Why, what's, the th- what's the thrill of I mean, a lot of people would say, say, well, what can you do with Bitcoin? Well, what good is that? You can't use that in the grocery store in, in Venezuela. This, it's true. The shelves are empty, but there are black market opportunities where you could make acquire stuff. But those people don't take Bitcoin. So what are they doing that's... Um, with the Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is the first successful digital currency that runs on the internet. And that's, uh, if you think about any other, uh, 
digital money, and most of us primarily use digital money at this point, it's routing through the traditional financial system. Um, there's, a, there's a third party involved, uh, g- generally a third party that is in partnership with the government. That's not true of Bitcoin. Uh, there is no third party. You're interfacing with this decentralized no network. There's example. no Federal Reserve. There's no bank, actually. Um, and nobody can stop you. Nobody can control it. Nobody can set the price. It's, it's a complete free market in currency. Um, and it's a sort of amazing technological feat that this is possible and it's secure. Um, but so in Venezuela in 2003, Hugo Chavez, I think it was an oil strike that initially prompted this, um, put in place currency controls, setting up a fixed exchange rate. Uh, currently, there's three levels. I believe the most advantageous level is about one U.S. dollar for 660 Venezuelan bolivars. Um, it, it, on the black market, uh, sort of free market rate, it's more like one U.S. dollar for uh, uh, 3,700 bolivars. So nobody wants to participate in this fixed exchange rate. But because the traditional financial system and, and you know, Venezuela has a modern banking system, um, it is um, forced to abide by this government exchange rate. And as a result, your money is worthless. You can't buy stuff out of the country with your bolivars. Nobody will take it. Um, there's a little bit, you know, if you cross the, the Colombian border, you can use cash. Um, and there is, to some degree, a free market, a free exchange rate. And that's actually how we know the black market rate uh, through the, on the, the exchange houses on the Colombian border, where you can do an exchange with cash. But for most of the country, and, and if it's digital, you can't do it. So Bitcoin, what it does, it's a, it's a complete borderless technology. It doesn't, it doesn't matter where you are in the country when you pay, where you are in the world when you pay someone in Bitcoin. Um, it is, it's essentially circumventing these, uh, these currency controls. And it's allowing Venezuelans to spend their money abroad. And, and very specifically, um, a lot of them, and I, you know, I talked to many, many miners and, and others who are do, using Bitcoin in this way. They are, um, buying groceries from Amazon.com. Um, there is an industry of courier services in Miami uh, who uh, are pre- predate the currency controls and are very sophisticated at bringing packages into the country. They're routing their Amazon orders to these warehouses and then having the food, uh, often canned goods, rice, uh, cornmeal, non-perishables, delivered straight to their homes. Um, and now, you, of course, the first thing you might say is, well, Amazon doesn't accept Bitcoin. It doesn't matter um, because they, they're, they use – there's a couple services. There's a, a site called eGifter where you can buy an Amazon gift certificate with Bitcoin. There's a great company called Purse.io, which allows you to use Bitcoin to buy things on Amazon through an intermediary. This also actually makes me think back to your conversation with Gavin Andreessen in 2011 when there was a – you guys were discussing, as I recall, some concern about the fact that nobody takes Bitcoin. What is this worth? Um, what we found out since then is that it doesn't matter that much because if you have a Bitcoin credit card at the point of sale, it's converted to fiat dollars. There's so many services that will convert your Bitcoin to, uh, to traditional money that the fact that any one vendor doesn't take it doesn't, doesn't matter. Yeah, there's basically exchanges where you can move back and forth between Bitcoin and dollars, at least right now. Now, there's always still a question whether that's going to persist. Um, we've talked about this before, but I'll just mention it in passing. Uh, there's nothing, quote, behind Bitcoin. It's just it has value as long as people think it has value. 
There are a lot of people out there who want it to have value. That's not quite enough, but it's getting getting us there. It's important to remember that the U.S. dollar isn't backed by anything real. Uh, it does have the advantage, though, that the U.S. courts will settle disputes about contracts made in U.S. dollars, and you can pay your taxes in U.S. dollars. So that automatically creates a viability for being paid in dollars that, in many ways, along with just some vague level of trust, creates the value of a and usefulness of, of accepting dollars in, in your paycheck. But Bitcoin is using a different but not unre- totally unrelated method of, well, if people think they can be useful somewhere, then they are, at least for now. So people are – I mean this is just a mind-boggling bit of – piece of economics. I just – as some microeconomist just utterly uh, fascinates me that price controls in Venezuela on food – means there's not much food or none, in many cases, on the shelves. Price controls on electricity and subsidies means that they're really it's really cheap to use electricity. People have enterprisingly gone out and are generating Bitcoin with that cheap electricity to import food from America. It's it's mind blowing. Now the government, as my uh, my, and I credit my Reason editor Peter Suderman for helping come up with this formulation. Uh, in terms of it's what we say is that it's turning socialism against itself. Right. It's it's an end around uh, exploiting a, a piece of the of the system that's uh, the, the subsidy electricity. It's just it's just extraordinary. So the government doesn't like this though. One one question would be why? Uh, you know, people are. Literally hungry there, it appears. It's hard to know exactly how bad it is, by the way. You're painting a very negative picture. I think it's pretty negative. I don't know if it's as negative as and 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 destroy and scary as despairing as you suggest, but it's clearly not good. Uh, but you'd think the government would be happy that some people have found a way to get some food into the country. Um, why are they cracking down on it and talk about how they're cracking down? Um, well, they are not – they are cracking down um, – in part, they could certainly go farther. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing, so this was, um, earlier, uh, early last year, um, the government, the state owned, uh, uh, media issued a report that Bitcoin is, you know, it's terrible. It's used by criminals. The same kind of, uh, thing that, that people in the U.S. sometimes use to, to, to speak negatively about Bitcoin. Um, and then right after that, a handful of Bitcoin miners were arrested. Um, on ground on a number of charges, one of them being electricity theft, uh, because uh, on the, you know, one miner in particular who I interviewed who ended up spending three and a half months in prison, whose name is Joel Padron, was told by his arresting officers that, you know, he was taking advantage of this free resource, the electricity that the government was giving him to to generate currency to line his own pockets, essentially. Um, so uh, a number of miners were arrested. Uh, it was reported on in the state owned media um, and the the effect was in a, in a, to allow uh, the the uh, the seven which is the secret police in Venezuela um, to uh, go to other miners and essentially extort them. And I spoke to many uh, Bitcoin miners who knew of other miners uh, with direct experience who were, you know, paying tribute to uh, to the police uh, in order so that they could continue their activities. Um, because, you know, again, the the police officers are also living in this country. They're they're you know they're facing the same empty empty grocery stores. Um, so r- really, what it's done is created this kind of extortion racket. 
Um, the government could go farther. Um, you know, there is an exchange in Venezuela called Sir Bitcoin. It's the largest exchange. It's actually run out of Brooklyn, uh, uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, and they essentially there, you know, it's like any other exchange. You can exchange your Bolivars for, for, for Bitcoins. Um, and they are in partnership with Benesco, with one of the big banks in Venezuela, which allows you to do this digitally. Um, they, they actually, many of the, they have a very good relationship with the bank. Uh, many of the, uh, people at the bank are actually their customers. The government could certainly come in and say, put an end to this and shut down Sir Bitcoin. That wouldn't actually stop Bitcoin because Bitcoin at its core, and we can talk about this if you want, is a peer-to-peer technology. So the exchanges aren't necessary. But the government could do more, and they probably will eventually do more as this continues to scale. It's still most Venezuelans aren't mining Bitcoin yet. Um, people hear about Bitcoin. People whisper about Bitcoin, this strange technology where you can kind of create money with computers. A lot of them don't understand it. Um, when I was doing the reporting on They're my Piece, though. Well, <laughs> when it, I, it's hard to understand. <laughs> well, when I was doing the reporting on my piece, um, uh, the uh, Sir Bitcoin was its its volume was increasing by about twenty percent a week. It's growing so rapidly. If you go uh, to the the big peer to peer Bitcoin trading site, a wonderful company called Local Bitcoins, they make all of their data available. You'll see the incredible growth in Bitcoin use uh, every week in Venezuela. I think that as it grows, you probably will see more of a government backlash. At this point, it seems mainly as a way uh, driven by the police uh, to sort of set up this extortion racket. As you're talking, it reminded me, we mentioned that Bitcoin in 2011 was 90 cents for one Bitcoin. Do you know what it is right now? Uh, I could, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it reached up to a thousand right around New Year's and it was dipping back down to 800. There's a lot of rumors coming in from China, which are affecting it a little bit in the $800 range, I believe. Yeah. But it moves around a lot, but, uh, a 90 cent investment would have turned out pretty well. If you sold out, it may turn out to be worthless eventually. Um, so the government has cracked down some, you, you mentioned a Facebook group, another example of the internet circumvents, um, some government activity. There's an internet group for, I mean, a Facebook group for Venezuelan uh, Bitcoin miners. Talk about what it has on there and how the degree that people have to go through to maintain their anonymity. Yeah, it's well, it's a secret Facebook group. When, as I mentioned earlier, when the state-owned media started coming out with negative Bitcoin stories and some miners were arrested, some of the moderators of the group, controversially, actually, because it's really slowed growth of the group. It was growing enormously before that. They changed the settings in the Facebook group to make it secret, which means that it's not only you not only need an invitation, you won't even know it exists unless you get an invitation into this group. Um, and a, a source w- did add me. And I will say also, many of the people who are in this group fully suspect that there are members, uh, you know, of, of the secret police who are part of this group. So they still often use secondary profiles and so forth. But it is um, what what the the uh, kind of leading person uh, behind setting up this group, a, a guy named Randy Brito, who's about twenty one at the time and a real libertarian. Also, uh, set up. He's a he lives in Spain. His family fled Venezuela years ago. Um, he set up the group in part to kind of teach people about libertarian economics and so forth. And it didn't go in that direction, interestingly. Um, 
uh, most people don't seem to be particularly interested in talking about ideology or economics. They're interested in, they're interested uh, in this group. I mean, they're interested in selling stuff. It's kind of an online bazaar. And, and to me, it shows it's, it's a very, um, it makes me very optimistic about Bitcoin because it's, this is a community that is using Bitcoin, uh, not like many of the users here in the U.S., not for ideological reasons, but because it's, it's making their lives better. So people are every day you see listings for, I just saw one for tires, uh, cars, I've seen houses, toilet paper, um, anything where you, they're offering it for sale, they'll send it to you and you'll send them Bitcoin in return. Uh, seems sort of inefficient, but uh, there, there's a lot of participants in this this group, people are also selling Bitcoin uh, to each other in exchange. You know, it, it also, to some degree, uh, s- serves as a um, an exchange. Um, it's uh, there's also it- there's a reputational aspect to it. People give each other recommendations. Say, oh, have you d- done business with this person? Who can who can say that this person is trustworthy, etc. But is there also information clearing there going on about how Bitcoin is working or what the government's doing or that kind of thing? Very little. Very, very little about that. You know, people don't, I, and I imagine it also getting back to the idea that it's sort of monitored. People don't want to speak freely in this group. They don't know who's reading it. Um, it it's really about commerce. Interesting. Now, you point out one of the aspects of Bitcoin, I think, that makes some people a little bit uneasy, including myself, is you can't touch it. It's purely digital. Um, you know, I have a little bit of Bitcoin. Uh, it's sitting in a digital wallet somewhere. In theory, I can get at it when I want, but it feels different from a bank. Even though a bank is also most my money in the in the bank or at Schwab is it, Charles Schwab is also digital. There's no real pieces of paper there to count, but it somehow it feels different. Uh, there's nobody to turn to if I feel I've been mistreated, which there is with the case of Schwab. If Schwab defrauds me, there's some legal recourse I have. With Bitcoin, it's a little bit of the Wild West. So that's usually uh, turns people off. But as you point out, one of the advantages in Venezuela because of the crime rate is that uh, it's harder to steal. That's well, that's right. I mean, you know, the classic refuge from inflation in Venezuela and in other Latin American countries as well has been the U.S. dollar. Um, however, unless you are lucky enough to have a U.S. bank account, and, and there are some Venezuelans who've spent time in the U.S. and, and, and are that lucky, um, you, you can't really uh, keep your money. You can't keep your life savings in dollars. There's no way to do it. You can keep cash. Um, there's been a real shortage in U.S. dollars within Venezuela uh, because of uh, what, what's, you know, the, the uh, currency controls and, and so forth. Um, of course, though, if you keep cash in your house, uh, that you're, you could get robbed. Um, and that happens all the time. I mean, this is a country that really has been just besieged by crime. In Caracas, nobody really goes out after eight o'clock anymore. Yeah, we're going to talk about death wanna, wish. I want to talk about that in a minute, but I want to stick with this for a sec because I just, I got to read this quote because I just love the, the, the quote. This is from your article. You say, since Bitcoin has no physical properties, it's also harder to steal. Venezuela still has a robust black market in the US dollars, but storing greenbacks, that is U.S. dollars, is risky in a country besieged by crime. Quote, burglars smell the Benjamins as if they were hunting dogs, says Hector, a physician turned Bitcoin miner. That sentence, burglars smell the Benjamins as if they were hunting dogs, says Hector, a physician turned Bitcoin miner. The whole, the whole thing is great. The, the, the imagery is, is fantastic. The alliteration of burglars and Benjamins. And then you've got a physician who's Bitcoin mining because it's presumably 
as least as lucrative as being a doctor in, in Caracas. It's kind of sad. Yeah, a physician who has given, he's a 44-year-old um, uh, Bitcoin miner who's totally given up practicing medicine because essentially there's no money and he can't get paid anymore. Uh, but let's now let's turn to the to the nighttime situation because that's an incredible story and it's just an example of the breakdown in civil society. It's t- terribly tragic. Um, talk about what happens uh, to the, one of the people you talk to um, in a kidnapping situation. Yeah, um, a uh, Bitcoin miner uh, um, who I, I use a I call him Luis. I use pseudonyms for many of these people. I uh, interviewed them on the condition of anonymity because there's obvious uh, incredible risks in terms of being caught uh, doing this activity um, in, in in Venezuela. Um, he, uh, I, I tell in the piece the story of what's called an express kidnapping. He was driving in uh, Caracas with his girlfriend. Uh, he was pulled over. Um, guys with guns got out. One of them, I believe, had a grenade. They held him hostage. And uh, uh, his father ended up making a payment, giving them, I think, about $6,000 that he gathered up from neighbors frantically in the night um, and getting this this person, uh, this miner released. Um, and then actually, because he they, they didn't actually know that he was a Bitcoin miner, it doesn't seem that they did, though, because of his mining activities, he was actually able to reimburse the people that that put money forward for his um, to, to help him get out. And and this guy who's he's a young guy, he's you know, he's uh, very tech savvy, the, the exact type of person. Uh, and I spoke to many people from my piece who are just like this, that, that you'd think uh, Venezuela's future sort of rests on. You know, they, they, they're just an enormous, would be an enormous asset to the country. And even though they're getting by thanks to their Bitcoin mining activities, some of them are doing quite well. They're getting out of there because it's just no place where you want to live, raise a family. So the, the number of people that anyone who can really, it seems to be making plans to leave at this point. Yeah, I don't, we don't really know what's going to happen policy-wise. Um, it's uh, the, to change that. It's just a, it just seems like just a very bad situation. But that kind of breakdown and that's not a rare event, evidently, or it's not. It's not. I wouldn't say it's necessarily common. I have no idea. But it, the fact that it's happened at all is so distressing, and uh, must be so distressing to, to people who are um, in those in those circles. It's just. It's just terrifying. Um, and, and just as you say, terribly sad, sad, partly just because the human toll, partly because it means the country is going to lose some of the more talented people who might be part of its future. Um, let's think for a minute just about about that government crackdown or the fear of being arrested, the fact that people use pseudonyms in your story. Um, you know, we, we talked earlier about this, but how bad is it? Is it? Are they just worried because some Bitcoin miners have been arrested or is it getting worse? Do we have any idea about that? Um, I, you know, I, uh, you know, I've st- staying in touch with these people. I've heard some worrying uh, r- reports recently about a few more crackdowns on miners. Um, you know, it is uh, it depends a little bit on where you are in the country. In, in the Valencia, it's, it's worse than in Caracas. You know, the, the um, police, it's, it's sort of regional to some degree. So the attitudes are different. Um, it's, 
it, it, I, you know, I wouldn't say the vast majority of miners have not gotten in trouble. It's hard to know how many are being extorted, but we also don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. And I think a lot of people expect that the, the, the food and the economic situation could only get worse. Um, these people are going to become, you know, they, they really become targets. And, uh, uh, you know, spending time in a Venezuelan prison is not, not something you want to do. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's just a terrifying place because the rule of law has completely broken down. Yeah, I, again, I just wonder how bad it really is. It's just, um, you know, if, you, if I, I'm interested, if there are any listeners out there who are in Caracas right now uh, or who visited Caracas lately, uh, you know, a lot of times I, I, I always think about Israel, which I visit a couple times a year. Israel's a beautiful country. Um, and whenever I go, People say, aren't you worried? And of course, there's always the risk of some danger, but uh, Israel's an incredibly safe country. Uh, my, my niece lives there and her kids run around much more freely than my kids ran around the United States without fear. And there's a certain disproportionate media coverage of violence and tragedy there that encourages people to think it must be like a war zone. Well, it's nothing like a war zone at all. And, you know, for all I know, the places that I think of as like a war zone, like Beirut, Maybe life is normal there, too. So Caracas, I, when people talk about how, quote, horrible it is or how it's falling apart, I suspect most of the time, most people are leading somewhat normal lives there. But I have no way of knowing. I'd be curious if anybody out there knows there, knows about that. And, and Jim, if you want to comment on that. Yeah, I mean, possibly before 8 p.m. I mean, I've, I've spoken to many people who told me that it's really you cannot go after go out after night. The city, this enormous city just just dies. I mean, it, at, at, at night, um, and uh, and I think that's uh, that that's sort of one of the really big changes. I mean, also Caracas is the murder capital of the world, and it had a it had a terrible crime problem uh, before the most recent economic crisis. But it has uh, it's certainly made things much much worse. So I, we're going to move on and talk about other applications and acti- Bitcoin activities going on in Latin America. Before I do, I'm just curious, where'd you get the idea for this story? This particular crazy mix of price controls and subsidies and entrepreneurship. Yeah, um, well, I actually was in Brazil uh, doing reporting on a couple different stories, um, and I ended up um, uh, uh, meeting with and interviewing um, uh, members of the Bitcoin community in Brazil. And there's actually, and we can talk about that in a moment, there is actually some parallels to what's happening in Brazil with Bitcoin and what's happening in Venezuela. Um, and uh, I, I, it was through a, a contact there named Fernando Ulrich, who's really a terrific writer about Bitcoin. He's a, a Brazilian um, who uh, turned me on to the fact, just in conversation, that uh, Rodrigo Souza, who runs Sir Bitcoin, the biggest Bitcoin exchange in Venezuela, um, works about a mile from where I live in Brooklyn, that he's actually in Brooklyn. Uh, and again, it, it points to the fact that this is a, uh, it's a, it's a borderless technology. It doesn't matter where you are. And, that's, um, and, and 
Go ahead. Yeah, and and Rodrigo is he's he actually runs a company called Blink Trade. He's a former um, uh, uh, New York Stock Exchange uh, software developer who has uh, mimicked the kind of exchange broker exchange relationship that the New York Stock Exchange has, where he runs he has a liquidity pool, he runs the software, and then he interfaces with uh, a variety of countries: Vietnam, Brazil. He runs the biggest exchange in Brazil, uh, um, Sir Bitcoin in Venezuela. There's an exchange in Chile, and they're sort of their local brokers who essentially are hooking up his exchange to to, to a, a bank, um, and that, that's sort of how this technology works. And it, it it it's right here in Brooklyn, and allowing people to trade their own domestic currency for Bitcoin, which would right. otherwise be it's not like when you when you land in Caracas and you go to the, to the if there is a foreign exchange. Uh, uh, window there. I don't know if there is, but it, there isn't usually a, a Bitcoin opportunity there. Uh, well, and and I was just going to say also, you know, when when I started to talk to Rodrigo, and he was telling me about what was I just again probably some people first hear about this. I was having trouble wrapping my head around it, and you know how people are mining in Venezuela. I mean, isn't there an electricity shortage there? Um, anyway, the Rodrigo uh, led me to a bunch of other sources, and then the story started to unfold. That's very cool. So uh, you mentioned Brazil. Talk a little bit about Brazil, if you'd like, or other places. What else is going on in Latin America? And to what extent does it mirror uh, what's going on in Venezuela? Obviously, not every country has uh, price controls and empty shelves, and are, therefore people are importing food from Miami. But uh, there are some situations of, of weird public policy in Latin America. Bitcoin's uh, involved in those. Uh, what's going on? Well, uh, okay. So Brazil, which is the, I believe it's the biggest Bitcoin market in, uh, in Latin America. There's a lot of currency speculators. There's a, Foxbit is the big exchange. Um, the practical use though is similar to Venezuela. There are not the same currency controls. There's not a fixed exchange rate. However, there's an enormous amount of protectionism. So, um, if you want to import, if you want to buy an iPhone or a, a, an Apple laptop in, in Brazil and bring it into the country, you're going to pay a, a tariff uh, equal to, it can run as high as 60%. Um, if you want to bring money into the country, um, and these are very complex uh, rules for exactly how much you'll pay, but you might end up paying an income tax and bringing that money into the country of about 27.5%. If you're a Brazilian and you want to use your credit card to buy something from the U.S., or you come to, to, to the U.S. and you want to use your credit card for your hotel, you're going to pay a 6.38% fee on, every, uh, on everything you buy. So there's an enormous, there's, you know, enormous amount of protectionism, uh, sort of, um, uh, Bitcoin, similar to how in Venezuela it allows you to route around the fixed exchange rate. Bitcoin allows you to route around, uh, these, uh, these punitive taxes. So, for example, if you want to bring an Apple laptop into the country, um, you, you get whoever's selling it to you to write you a bill of sale for maybe half the amount, something to show at customs. Um, you pay the tax on that amount. Um, and then you pay the rest of the bill in Bitcoin and you, you, you pay nothing. So let, let's try to understand that. It's a little bit puzzling to me. So let's say there, there are a number of ways I could buy a foreign product in, in a, in a country. I can, um, Go to a store that's imported it for me, and usually a store has trouble avoiding evading uh, tariffs because they've got a concrete brick and mortar presence, and they've got to pay taxes, and they've got 
receipts, and it's it's just a little more challenging to smuggle goods in. But I can also, you know, I can just have somebody ship me a, if I have a relative in America, I could ship it. And of course, that product shows up at the border, that package, and they inspect them and things get confiscated or taxed at the border, depending on what's in them. So I don't understand how Bitcoin is helping me. I mean, I could try to direct order it. I don't know if, if Apple sells direct order to Brazil, say, or other com- companies do. But how how is Bitcoin helping me? I don't quite understand that. See if you can explain that again. So, so um, you know, Apple, I don't believe would direct order to Brazil, but uh, you know, you'd have a third party company working with Apple that might do that. Um, and uh, in in terms of when bringing that good into the country, when that when that uh, laptop or, or phone or whatever you're buying from that. That reseller in the U.S. When, you know that that item has to cross customs, um, and you need to produce a bill of sale, and the bill of sale will show how much you paid, and they're going to make sure that you have paid the tax, the import tax, right? So um, because it's a good, you can't you can't pay for the entire uh, uh, item through Bitcoin through this by circumventing it. So you have to pay for part of it um, at the border, but then. With Bitcoin, what you can do is you can you can pay half of it. You can you can work out a deal with the reseller, and there are many Brazilians who are doing this sort of thing. Work out a deal um, to uh, make up a bill of sale for half the price, and then you're gonna. So this, uh, I, let me see. If, it's let me tax see. evasion essentially. Yeah, let me see if I get uh, this. So uh, I'm the reseller. I'm selling you a um, a two thousand dollar computer. So I need two thousand dollars from you, the buyer in, in Brazil. I declare it as a $1,000 computer. You pay me $1,000 in, in cash, uh, in dollars. But you're saying the other 1000 shows up in Bitcoin as an uh, unobserved transaction by the customs people. So the customs people see a computer. They see a bill of sale for $1,000. They go, oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's reasonable. And then it, it goes through, and so you only pay the tariff on the thousand rather than the two thousand, and and that's what's going on. Is that is that what's happening? That's correct. And because you're going through a Bitcoin exchange, uh, in the case of Brazil, it's most likely going to be Foxbit. Um, it's not going through the banking system, so it's unobserved, not traceable. It, it, yeah. You're right. It's not traceable. It's not um, uh, you know. Same thing with just moving money into Brazil. You know where you might be hit depending on the amount. It's it's fairly complicated, but you might be hit with if you want to if you're a company and you want to pay some employees in Brazil, you might pay a twenty seven and a half percent tax on that. Well, you can actually route all that money through a Bitcoin exchange, and then you're not working through a bank bureaucracy, which in a sense is in partnership with the Brazilian government. Uh, so therefore, you're, you're circumventing that tax. Now, you might say, well, uh, why doesn't the Brazilian, this is happening out in the open, why doesn't the Brazilian government crack down on this and stop Foxbit from, the, from this use? Well, first of all, it's, it's hard to know um, why someone is using Foxbit, what they're doing with it. Uh, you, know, what, what, you know, are they just making yeah, an exchange yeah. for other reasons? So that's hard to tell. Um, they could shut down Foxbit entirely. Uh, they could do that. But again, um, Bitcoin, and this is one of the reasons I'm so optimistic about Bitcoin, um, it is at its core a peer-to-peer technology. Um, and the uh, 
technology around Bitcoin has been improving so rapidly that in the near future, um, these uh, peer-to-peer transactions will be as convenient as working through one of these exchanges. And when Bitcoin is truly peer-to-peer, as it was intended, uh, if you go back to Satoshi Nakamoto's original paper, um, it is very, very difficult, virtually impossible for anyone to interfere with the movement of money. Um, and, and that, that is um, it was short of shutting down the internet. But I'm curious how the, I'm thinking about that reseller. They can't, ad, do they advertise? This computer is $2,000, but if you pay it with 1000 in Bitcoin, it's only $1,000. How, how does that transaction, how does information about this opportunity happen? Or does the seller, does the buyer call up and say, well, the price is 2000 I'll give you 2200 actually, but only 1200 of it will be in, um, uh, in, in 1000 will be in cash and 1200 will be in Bitcoin. We'll both be better off because we won't have yeah, to pay well, the for, for, uh, for example, the company called Bit One, which is moving money into Brazil to get around the tax, um, they're, I believe, using the Foxbit exchange. What it is is there's some companies that are sort of helping to facilitate this process. It's not advertised. Uh, it's word of mouth. More people in the know are, are, are learning about it. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not at this point, I think, uh, that big a phenomenon. Yeah, it's growing. Yeah. Um, the, it's really kind of w- what interests me so much about it is what it points to, yeah. the potential. Right. And of course, like you, given our philosophical um, uh, preferences, I love the idea of that. Uh, other people would say, well, that's horrible. They're smuggling. They're, va- they're breaking the law. And uh, shame on them. And the government should crack down on it. What are your uh, What are your thoughts? Well, on I that? would also say to those people that um, there has been a black market in uh, getting around uh, these uh, these punitive tariffs already. Um, Bitcoin is a much safer way of doing it. Um, makes me think a little bit of Silk Road, you know, the online drug bazaar, which was ultimately shut down by the by the feds. Uh, you know, it made selling drugs kind of safe and reliable online. Uh, you take that away and you give it back to sort of a less predictable, um, more more violent uh, uh, sphere of the kind of, uh, um, you know, actors. Yeah, of course, my recent interview with Sam Canonis on uh, Dreamland uh, suggested there's some innovations in the delivery of drugs that are less violent. Uh, it's not that comforting given what it seems to be leading to, but that's a different topic. Let's talk about the underlying technology of Bitcoin and some of the applications you've noticed uh, in Latin America, again, is fascinating examples of an end around of an ineffective or uh, corrupt government system. So underlying Bitcoin is the blockchain technology. Uh, Describe that and talk about how people are using that uh, outside of Bitcoin. I think the the easiest way to understand a blockchain is it's a it's a database that nobody controls but everybody can trust. Um, it is it is the right it, so it undergirds Bitcoin. Um, it's basically the ledger. It's the, it's similar to the ledger that your bank would hold about you know when uh, Jim Epstein pays Russ Roberts ten dollars uh, you know through a bank transfer the the bank's ledger is updated. Um, in the same way, the, the Bitcoin ledger lives on this database called a blockchain, and it has this uh, ingenious architecture which allows it to be 
distributed. So um, it is, they're copies of the blockchain on computers all over the world. They're updated every 10 minutes with the most recent transactions. It, you can search any transaction. It's completely transparent. Uh, it can't, what is in the blockchain can't be changed. It's cryptographically protected. Um, so this, what Pretty soon after Bitcoin arrived on the scene, a lot of very smart people figured out that you could use this underlying technology of the blockchain for all sorts of applications separate from exchanging currency. Um, and some of the most exciting uh, applications are in a place like Latin America. Um, uh, you know, prob- what excites me most is actually this idea of putting land titles on the blockchain. Uh, I, I live in New York City. There's a database we have called Acris uh, that's run by the city of New York. You can look up who paid what for uh, for what plot of land, and you can look check out the history. And it's uh, it's trustworthy. Um, it's not really a problem. Bitcoin doesn't solve any problems here so much. Um, but then you take a country like um, Honduras, where uh, the, the, and I haven't done my own reporting, but I'm told that land records were kept on dusty books in a government office. Uh, you could have people come in and cross out a name and put a different name down. Very difficult to figure out who owns what. It's a complicated legal process. And uh, many of your listeners might be aware of, uh, uh, there's a book called The Mystery of Capital by Hernando de Soto, where he talks about this problem in Peru of insecure ownership of land and how detrimental that is to an economy. Um, the, the historian Sam Bass Warner once said that the most important thing that a government does is keep track of who owns what land. And the fact of the matter is, is that outside of the U.S., the government has done a fairly poor job of, of doing that. Um, and this has created all sorts of problems. So the blockchain um, uh, offers in an opportunity to you can in a sense upload the transactions when a piece of land is traded between two individuals to the blockchain um, th- there's some complexity there the blockchain can't you can't put all the information into a blockchain but people have come up with ways of creating sort of digital representations of the information of when one person trades a piece of land with another so therefore you could go onto a blockchain and see uh, make sure that nobody's coming in and, and falsifying a record. You can prove the integrity of a transaction. And this has enormous uh, implications. Uh, um, Honduras, which I mentioned, there's a a great company out of Austin called Factum, which was close to a deal with the government in uh, in, in Honduras to put their land titles on the blockchain. The the project has stalled. Uh, There is a project in the Republic of Georgia to put land records on the blockchain. Um, So, you know, it's, it's, Beginning to happen. There's growing interest in this, at least. There's also, uh, I, I um, interviewed a, a Brazilian entrepreneur who is working on a, he's got a startup that attempts to put uh, notary services on the blockchain. Now, in the U.S., notaries aren't really such a big deal. Uh, in Brazil, like a few other Latin American countries, every time you do any transaction, you got to go to a notary in person, uh, and they're going to check your signature against a book they have of signatures. Um, it's a very arduous process. If your signature isn't in store on a book in the city where you happen to be, that's problematic. Um, um, these, my understanding is that these uh, um, 
it's 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 cartelized to some degree. The right to run one of these notaries has been handed down through generations. You can't break into this industry, and it's one of many reasons that Brazil, I think, is 122nd on the Economic Freedom Index in 2016. There's just so much red tape that hurts the economy in Brazil. So the idea there is, if instead of checking a signature, you can upload a document, a representation of a document to the blockchain, you can then later take that same document, check the blockchain and prove that it's the same record. I mean, there's some trying to avoid some of the technical complexity here. But again, the basic idea is that this database that everyone shares can bring the trust that is missing and is uh, crippling to a lot of these economies. Well, it's a really interesting example because in economics, public policy, we talk very casually about what we call property rights as if they're straightforward. You know, it's private property, the right to own stuff. And usually what we mean by that is if the government comes along, it won't confiscate your stuff. You won't come home to find that your um, house has been turned in the United States. You won't come home and find your house has been turned into some uh, house for a government official. Of course, we do have eminent domain, which is a, a uh, problem of, of um, an inter- interference with private property. Uh, it's seizure of property. At least there is the idea that you'll be compensated. It's not always done fairly, of course, uh, and the outcomes are not always healthy. But we have basically what we would call private property in the United States. One more footnote, we have zoning and other things. But when I want to sell my property in the United States, it's it's pretty straight. We don't think of that as a problem. Uh, of course, it is a problem. There is a huge transaction cost with selling property. Turning a house over, that is selling it to someone and buying a new house, has thousands of dollars of transaction costs just to prove that it is your house indeed, literally indeed, that you own the house, that the property uh, borders of the house are what you claim it were, that they are to the to the to the new buyer. And that just – until you've sold a house, you don't realize that that's actually quite complicated. Even in the United States, which has a, a pretty good functioning legal system and a pretty good respect for private property, proving that you own something is is not free. It costs. It's expensive. Or you and, have to buy title insurance. Correct. You have to buy title I think insurance. I, I overstated how well the system works yeah. here in the U.S. No, but that's all right. But but my point is, is that I'm really more challenging the way economists and others talk about private property is like, hey, you buy and sell stuff. It's great. You have assets. But the truth is, is that even in the United States, which has a, a transparent uh, legal system relative to other countries, some other countries, it's very expensive to exchange property just because you have to prove that what you claim is yours. You're not a squatter. You're not living in someone else's house, that the land that you've developed, that you've built something on in the backyard isn't actually on your neighbor's property when it conveys to the new buyer. And so, and so that just, that's just fascinating to me. And, of course, in a, in a less developed country, in a country with a, with a less uh, – a more poorly functioning legal system, that very fact is, is up in the air. It's like you say, there could be a, a drawer somewhere or a book somewhere w- with some – register a record of, of who owns what that's very ambiguous. And that has an enormously costly effect as as DeSoto and others have have, uh, have explored. So the idea of improving on that, not just a little bit, but in potentially getting almost all the transaction costs out of that uh, that transaction is 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 a fabulous thing. Just to chime in on the deficiencies of the system in the US, if there if a property has been foreclosed upon and it's being auctioned 
Um, in, in many cases, uh, you have to show up and you're interested in that property. You need to show up in person on a, at a certain time and place uh, to make a bid and have a bank check ready to put down on that. Um, that's another. And of course, what, what that does is it, you know, it severely narrows the market. Many more people might be interested in bidding on that property. The price would go up significantly. Um, Bitcoin and the blockchain are a, are a perfect solution to that problem. Well, you call it a deficiency. It's just a reality of the fact that there's uncertainty. It's not always clear that how people represent themselves are, are trustworthy or reliable. And the legal system is one way often the cheapest way to, to solve that problem of getting rid of the ambiguity or the lack of trust that I might have when you represent yourself as a legitimate buyer with credit. Uh, and I represent myself as a legitimate seller with a, pro- with a product that is the land that I claim to own and, or, and that I own it free and clear, which may not actually be the case. So this, all this complexity we're talking about is just a reality of the fact that the world's complicated. People don't always tell the truth. And of course, sometimes they don't, it's not, uh, dishonesty. It's just ignorance. Sometimes you might not know about that you share a driveway with the house next door because uh, you never paid attention to it. Uh, and when you sold the house, you didn't tell that person that that was the case. So these are just realities. What, what's interesting to me about the blockchain is that it does possibly have the potential to just reduce these inevitable costs to a much, much smaller level. I want to mention one more example and uh, to to cut to Mexico, um, there's a company called Volabit in Mexico that actually it's up to now been serving as a Bitcoin uh, broker. uh, And they're uh, now exploring technology to put Mexican uh, promissory notes, uh, notes which have to be there has to be a physical paper now, according to the rules in Mexico, uh, putting those on a blockchain um, so that so that it's easier to prove that you have a loan digitizing in effect um, that the, the other uh, Mexico is also interesting as well um, to cut to back, back to Bitcoin for a moment. You know, Mexican doesn't have currency controls. Um, it's easy to move money. It, it, uh, it's easy to do a remittance if you're a Mexican working in the U.S. and you want to send money home to uh, to your family in Mexico. That that uh, corridor is very well developed. You're not going to pay very big fees. In contrast to Venezuela, and I, in my piece, I talk about one. There, there's a woman who's sending money home to her family in Venezuela. She was literally having a family member walk cash across the border. Now she's using Bitcoin uh, because again, it's it's circum vents those currency those controls but in mexico you don't you don't have that advantage so people were really kind of like hey mexico is really not gonna take off with uh with bitcoin well if you look at uh recent data on what's happening with the exchanges they are growing at a staggering pace um actually with uh the election of donald trump uh bitcoin uh um the volume of Bitcoin trades in Mexico went berserk. The, the Mexican peso has done just performed terribly uh, in, in 2016. Um, and it, it's, it's hard, just like in Venezuela, it is hard to get your money into dollars. You can't keep dollars in a Mexican bank account. So Bitcoin, although still somewhat volatile, not nearly uh, as reliable as the U.S. dollar, um, is a good refuge from inflation. It's also in Mexico. Uh, the the me- people on the exchanges in Mexico have noticed that you have teenagers who want to play video games and they they uh, 
participate in a platform called Steam. Um, they can now pay in Bitcoin. So you have people who don't have access to bank to banking infrastructure. And this is true all throughout Latin America. Lots of towns in Mexico don't have a single branch bank. People don't have banks. So and there's always, you know, policy experts are always trying to figure out what what can we do to, to you know, about the unbanked. The you know poor people don't use banks; they use check cashing places, and it's very expensive. Um, Bitcoin is beginning to show signs of uh, of a solution to this that it, that it is a solution to this problem. Well, my guest that has been Jim Epstein. Jim, I love your optimism uh, and and these little green shoots of possibility for Bitcoin and the blockchain. Um, it'll be fascinating over the next few years to see. Um, See what comes to them. Thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.